the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me are my buds, Mike and Brian, and we also have a special guest today who I am going to let Mike introduce. Uh, Well, we are happy to have a professional designer with us, Eric Troutman. Eric, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely our pleasure to have you. So, um, James, how are you doing today? I am doing very well indeed. Uh, Mike, you guys doing good? The status is quo. (laughs) The status is not quo. And I just need to move it. Uh, Well, before we jump any deeper into Geek Out or the show, um, we've already said that you're a professional game designer, Eric, but uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself so that the light bulbs above their heads can go off and they go, oh, him. Uh, Okay. How might your listeners know me? Um, uh, On the tabletop side of things, I was the, I was a frequent freelancer, then editor, then line editor of the star Wars role-playing game uh, as published by West end games in the 1990s. Um, from there, I was, uh, I worked heavily in video games. I was a founding member of Microsoft's, uh, uh, what did they call us? Uh, uh, franchise development group is what we were. Our job was, we were the ministry of useless toys is what we were. Uh, I want to work for that department. That sounds great. (laughs) Yeah. Why don't you ask him if he really, if you really do want to work for that department? No, no, let's not answer that on this, on the mics. Um, yeah. Uh, so things like the halo novels, uh, originated in my office, that kind of stuff. And then in 2006, I left Microsoft to go back to full-time freelance writing, uh, predominantly in comics. Um, I did a ton of stuff for DC in 2006 to about 2011, and then a lot for dynamite entertainment, um, after that. And now, uh, I'm mostly doing graphic design for comics, uh, create our own stuff from image comics, uh, Lazarus risen, the old guard, uh, black magic. And, uh, I also do similar work for the atomic robo guys, which is one of my favorite projects. Oh my so, gosh. I love atomic robo. Those guys are great. I, I have a lot of fun on that book. Um, I put together their hardcovers for, um, they crowdfund their hardcovers, um, yeah, and there's, and there's always like bonus stuff, like these photo reel, like from the files of Doctor Dinosaur, or from the Black Ops groups in in the in the setting, and I make those. Um, so that's how they might know I, me. <laughs> I, I have so many of the Atomic Robo graphic novels, and I just look around and I keep wondering, why is this not bigger? Why aren't more people talking about this comic? I uh, I know Brian has a similar question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I certainly, uh, my wife owns a comic shop here in the Pacific Northwest in Lacey, Washington, Olympic cards and comics. If I could throw a plug in, uh, absolutely may. we have a oh, yeah. very, we have a very carefully curated, uh, dedicated young readers section. And that is a mainstay. I sell so many of those books, um, that way. Cause it's, it's perfect for that 12 to 13 year old kid who's yes, into science exactly. and nerdy stuff, but doesn't want to, you know, like, cause the science is all very good in the book, but it's not very, mm-hmm educational comic like there's still jokes and explosions and stuff so Mm. yeah um so that's me very cool and uh so as is uh customary with uh geek at arms whenever we have a guest on uh we'll jump into geek out and we'll let you have first crack at it so uh eric what have you been geeking out to recently 
Uh, the Hero Forge platform that lets you custom design miniatures uh, for tabletop gaming. Uh, I don't know if you've messed with it, but it's uh, it's oh, yeah. extremely addictive. I've, um, I've been on the site and I've I've customized many a little person and then purchased none because yeah. I just <laughs> I just don't have the ability to right now. Yeah, the, the I was a backer of the Hero Forge 2.0, um, which had color, so I've been using, I, I had early access to the color, and it satisfies the same urge that building a, a model kit or uh, a Lego set does for me. Um, when I'm, I spend so much of my time looking at the screen, doing professional stuff, um, taking ten minutes in between projects as a palette cleanser and you know, making a, like, like a werewolf mobster or something like, is hugely, hugely therapeutic. At this point, I think I have over 600, 650 minis in my, uh, in my, my saved designs. I haven't purchased any yet either. Uh, oh, I take that back. I, I do. I download the STL files cause I have friends who can print them, but, uh, I'm, I'm the world's worst painter, so <laughs> I haven't painted any of them yet. See, uh, that's what we did with my daughter when she she was looking for a mini for our role-playing game that we do as a family with a couple of friends, and she couldn't find a Star Wars squib mini anywhere. It's like, uh, for some reason, like, people don't want to play these? What's going on? And so Hero Forge was something we can scale something down and yeah. get some get the right weapons in the hand. She's like, oh, I can put a blaster in this hand and a baton in the other. I, I can make this any way I want. And yeah. that's what we did is downloaded the STL and had a friend print it off and still haven't painted it. So I guess that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yes. Status is, as was said earlier, quo. Uh, <laughs> and I guess the other thing I've been geeking out a lot over lately, uh, uh, film and TVs inbounds, right? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Cobra Kai. I, yeah. I cannot get over how good that show is. Um, I missed it when it first aired, when it moved over to Netflix, I started watching it and that is a show that on paper should not function at all. It should not work. <laughs> I don't know how they got it made. I want to see a show about how they got it made because on paper it should be a disaster and it is so brilliantly written and takes so many interesting turns while also just being the Karate Kid movie every week for half an hour. I don't, I don't understand how they did it. it there's some real alchemy there that uh, I find extremely compelling. So if you've not seen it, build yourself out some time to binge it because you'll go, this can't work. And then you'll watch it and go, why does this work? <laughs> I, I thought the same thing. I remember hearing about it, like, you know, what the premise was going to be that it's Daniel LaRusso and, you know, Johnny from the first movie and in present day and they're aged and they pick up their rivalry. I'm like, no, no, wait, they've got Ralph Macchio and the guy who played Johnny again. Oh, this is going to be a train wreck. This is, this is just going to rub nostalgia all over. It, it's it, no way. And yet all I'm hearing is just critical and rave reviews about it. Well, it is not, it's not just uh, Machio and Zabka who came back. Um, like there's an episode uh, in the, I think it's in the second season where uh, Johnny goes to visit a friend in the hospital and it, it's all of his buddies that he used to pal around with in the first movie. And it's all the same actors. Huh. Um, and it's like, they're going to the hospital to visit this one friend who's dying of cancer and he has permission to like go out. He's, he's okay to go out for like one last night out kind of thing. And it's full of all of these ruminations on like the regret you carry with you and, mm. you know, don't waste the time you have. It's like really moving. And then come to find out that the actor who plays the character who's got cancer, he died of cancer before the episode aired. Like, oh my geez. God. Like there's, there's no... I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's self-aware enough 
that it works, but it's not so self-aware that it gets in the way of genuine pathos and genuine emotion. Like I, I bawled like a baby when I saw that episode. Wow. And, and then again, when, when I learned about the actor, it was like, this is, this is amazing. Um, so yeah, I, they're, they're really paying attention to the source material, um, but adding consequence. It's all got some gravitas that, that like, so when the kids have their eventual, the, the rival dojos have their eventual rumble, right? Because it's Karate Kid and there's going to be rival dojos. Like, somebody's going to be going to jail. Like, you know, you've committed assault in a public forum. Yeah. It, <laughs> like, it's been caught like, on everyone's camera phones. We have proof. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I, I really commend that to your attention. It, it so, is a show that is easy to overlook and is so excellent. So as I said, this this was one that I thought was not going to be any good and ha- I had no interest in. But after listening to your review of it and some other people who we've had on the show, I'm going to admit that I'm probably wrong about it. And I'm going to I'm going to go give it a try and I'm going to go into it with with open and clear eyes, give it an honest chance it, instead of going into it with the it, negative emotion. I walked into it with a negative emotion and it won me over. I think I think you're probably safe, like because he's still Johnny. And he's a jerk. <laughs> he's a total jerk. But by the third or fourth episode, you're really kind of rooting for him to get it together. They do such a good job okay. with that character. I, I will admit I was scared for a moment because when I said that, you know, they brought back Ralph Macchio and Johnny's like, oh, no, they brought back more than them. Oh, dear Lord, they raised Pat Morita from the dead. <laughs> they, there's a lot of flashbacks to the film, so you do get to see him. Um, and his, his, uh, his teachings kind of lie over everything Daniel does. That's cool. Um, and the same way that Kreese's teachings lie over everything Johnny does. <laughs> there you go. So it's, you know, it's interesting that the two dojo masters are having their battle with their proxy warriors from beyond the grave, so to speak. So. Oh, very cool. All right. I will jump in next if that was it for you, Eric. Yeah, I'm, I'm cool. Good. Um, for me, I think that Brian and I are going to have a little overlap here. Uh, just a, a few weeks. That's why I wanted you to go first. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, just a few weeks ago, as of the recording of this podcast, the latest book in the Dresden Files came out, Battleground. And I, I, I bought it the day it came out on midnight. I bought it at 12.03, and I was able to stretch it out over the course of two days, which, honestly, I felt like I was doing really good at making it last that long. And I, I still feel like I'm recovering from it. It was a roller coaster of a novel, just threw me up and down. Typical Dresden style writing, except for really the first time, there's no detective work. There is a little bit of a mystery involved, but it's very much uh, in the background. It's yet another book where um, nothing is going to be the same after the events of this one. Um, it's still new enough. I'm really going to keep things very general. Um, I'm not going to really point to anything specific because I don't want there to be spoilers. I thought there's so much action packed into this. I thought it would get tiresome. But I thought he did a great job with the pacing and that he was able to interject some smaller, more character-driven moments in between the faster pace scenes. And that made for a nice break in the action to kind of you know give the reader and also the character Harry Dresden himself time to breathe within all of what was happening over the course of a single night. Um, I doubt we're ever going to see a return to the what people would refer to as the traditional style of Dresden novels, which is more uh, mystery and detective work focus. And I might be wrong, but it got me thinking that a lot's changed for this character, especially now. And life is about change. 
you know, my life is completely different than it was 10 years ago. I mean, utterly completely different. And so that's okay to happen to our favorite characters in, in fiction as well. So you take it as it comes. And especially when the change happens gradually and uh, uh, organically, as I think has mostly happened to our uh, uh, supernatural detective. Uh, there was a lot of great scenes in this book, some that made me laugh, some that made me very happy. One that punched me straight in the gut, <laughs> blew out my... That was exactly... Exactly when Mike called me for a mental health check. <laughs> oh, man. Talk about good timing. I mean, it, it just... Yeah. It, Very bad timing. It blew out my spine and left my heart in tatters. And I'm like, no. Even when my wife, Joy, read that part, she was sitting next to me on the couch, and I knew the moment that she read that part. She goes, no. And she looked across at me and goes, no. We just sat there, and I held her hands for a few moments. Because you need an emotional break for a second after it happens. By weird coincidence, I had also called Joy at that moment. And all I get on the phone was, I need a minute here, Mike. <laughs> and then I, I, I... <laughs> Eric, if you have not read any of the Dresden Files yet by Jim Butcher, um, highly recommend you do so, good sir. Uh, I read the first one and I watched a little bit of the TV show. I'm familiar oh, with it. Please um, ignore the TV show, please, for our sake. I, I did. I, <laughs> okay, I will. Good. I did. <laughs> good. Everyone else did as well. So, so yeah. Um, of course, now we've had two books uh, within just a couple of months of each other after 10 years of nothing. So now I'm scared about how long it's going to take for the next one. <laughs> so, Brian, any thoughts on Battleground? Um, it was definitely a very action-y uh, entry into the series. I was I noticed that I think Butcher pulls back a little bit, actually, at those really emotional moments, and he gets a lot more um, externally descriptive, and we lose a little bit of Harry's psychological reaction. Okay. Um, I mean, it's still it's it's a first person book, so we still we're still getting his perspective on it, but I think. Uh, in comparison to, to similar uh, scenes from other books, I think he actually pulls back a little bit too much on it, and it didn't hit me as hard. Of course, maybe that's just because Mike called me in the middle of it. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> Geek at Arms is going to have to go through some therapy about this moment. I can tell right now. <laughs> going to need to see some professional help. Going to have to talk trauma. it out. Yeah. Uh, and at the very end, I thought that the – the payoff of that central mystery was a little shortchanged also. Yeah. But overall, it's it's a fantastic book, and it really is a, a really great ride. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of things that I thought weren't wrapped up, weren't resolved as well as I'd hoped. Like the whole thing, the conflict with uh, Ebenezer, I didn't, it didn't go Yeah, anywhere. it seemed to kind of, for something that was so huge in the book before this one, it, it, it petered out fairly fast. Yeah, it, it felt like it was just an excuse to get him off stage so that he wasn't contributing to mm -hmm. the, the story yeah. as much as he would have. Agreed. I'll agree with that. Uh, I'm sure you and I will have more conversations about this book later. But uh, <laughs> the other thing I've been geeking out to is that I talked in the last episode. I was playing a new Xbox game, a, a Tom Clancy a Ghost Recon. Uh, I had been playing that one, had a lot of fun with it. 
and then I stopped because it started developing some glitches. And glitches happen, but oh. when the game forces me to do the same mission four times in a row because it keeps resetting, oh, it keeps no. resetting itself. And even to the point where, like, I'm almost done with the mission, I'm going up to talk to a person, which is going to wrap it up, and then the game restarts on me. You take the cartridge out and blow I on it? I took the Xbox out, and I threw it in the backyard. Um, <laughs> let it sit in the sprinklers for a few hours. But I looked up some information online, and it said that some people have been having the glitch problem, some people have not. I'm going to let it sit for a while, because uh, if you get angry at a hobby, then it's no longer a good hobby. I, I put mm -hmm. that game aside and looked for something else to play. And about the same time that this happened, Xbox once again was having a sale as they do every week. They had the Game of the Year edition of The Witcher 3, the core game with all of its DLCs on sale for 15 bucks. And uh, that's what I've always been curious about. I've, I've read some of the books. I've watched some of the TV show. I'm partially familiar with the world, but it, you know, this was a game that won like a bajillion awards and fantastic reviews from so many sources. And I thought for 15 bucks, I'll give it a try. I've only been playing it for a couple of weeks, so I'll give a, a more in-depth review of it later. But from what I have played, it has been a lot of fun, a variable enjoyable experience in a great fantasy world. It's had some highs. It's had a couple of lows. One of the highs that I did not expect was how good the music would be and not just the underlying score that punctuates different scenes and when riding through the, uh, the countryside or being in towns. But there's also several uh, taverns uh, where you can see bards play and some of the music and the songs that these bards perform is, has been staggeringly good. One in particular by a young lady, which is part of a side quest, the song that she sings just absolutely blew my mind and pulled me so deeply into the game. I was completely invested in it and in the storyline. And it was just a beautiful moment of music and writing coming together to make a great moment in a game. And the, the young lady's voice was so beautiful. I found out, because I, I looked up information about the song and about the scene, I come to find out that the, uh, the young lady in the game, whose name is Priscilla, she is voiced by Emma Hiddleston, who is Tom Hiddleston's sister. Hmm. I'm like, huh, cool. Loki's sister is a character in this game. Uh, and that will wrap it up for me. Uh, so, uh, Mike, on to you. Yeah, something kind of interesting happened is that it's kind of a, a Venn diagram of anime interests. Last month, Paul gave us a gave us a title of an anime and said it was really, really good. And one of my friends gave me a description of an anime and said how really, really good it was, but didn't give me the title until he came in and said, OK, we're watching this. Here we go. You know the premise. I'm showing it to you. And it wasn't until I I took another look at last month's episode that I was like, wait a minute. Paul and Drew were talking about the same thing. <laughs> so, um, and uh, if you haven't checked out uh, RE0 uh, on Paul's recommendation, he said, you know, I'm not going to tell you the premise because it's going to spoil it. Well, you you've had a month, people. I mean, come on. What else really are you doing with your time except watching anime? So, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and spoil it now. If you don't want to hear it, then, you know, I don't know, cut out the next five minutes or so. Uh, the premise of this of the show is somebody is is a modern day high school student and he's just 
walking out of a convenience store one day and walks into an alternate dimension. Anthropomorphized animals and humans and half-elves and carts and dragons and swords and all of that. And he's like, huh, that's weird. Did I just kind of go into a video game or something? Eh, I know how these things work. I'll just go ahead and get a quest. And you know, the, the guy is a complete idiot. And it, it, it's, it's one of those things like that. Sometimes the show is so hard to watch because he is sometimes so stupid, cringy. Like, no, you're so focused on yourself. No, no, this is a bad. No, don't declare yourself the, a knight. Uh, because you like a girl because a real knight is gonna no that real knight's not gonna oh yeah he's gonna kill you okay and yeah you're dead and uh that's the thing is he he dies um a lot several times um in the first episode he dies and probably twice in the second because each time he dies he goes back to a spawn point and He's not in a video game like it hurts and it's traumatizing for him when he dies, but he does go back to a certain point and the character is, is kind of cool because he, he learns, he develops and he grows and people are sometimes astonished that he has grown so much in just a couple of days. Well, what they don't realize is that he's lived those few days over and over and over again and he's had to learn and he's had to grow. Otherwise, he and a lot of other people will die. And so it's it's fascinating watching this show because it has almost a, a an old serial sort of feel that, okay, all you have to do is get through this segment, get through these three or four episodes, which are part of this narrative arc, and then his spawn point moves forward. And so you're getting this, uh, this form of storytelling that is really about character growth and about... Uh, living through not so much a groundhog day because as he impacts the environment, the environment. I was about to say, changes. I hope that if they ever turn this into a Hollywood movie. Bill Murray plays the main character. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they'll have to turn that anti-aging way back. <laughs> so it's it's good because it's not watching the exact same thing happen over and over again. Also, because there seems to be a little bit of a butterfly effect, like something else happened that was slightly different. And so it's it's not repetitive like a lot of the Groundhog Day TV Fair. shows are. And that'll wrap it up for my geek out. Well, then I guess it's down to me. Uh, so I am the editor and webmaster for the Christian Gamers Guild. Um, and part of what I do there is we've got one particular extremely prolific writer, uh, Mike Garcia, who writes these insanely detailed modules purely for his own group. I mean, they're really, really good. And uh, we talked him into finally allowing me to publish one. And he gave me 45,000 words. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Of this first edition D&D module <laughs> that I had been working on and, and uh, formatting and editing for the web page. So that's going to come out in uh, November. And it's a uh, holiday-themed horror module. It's got the Wild Hunt. It's got Krampus. It's got Goblins evil elves it's it's a really really well put together module uh, and i've been i've been really enjoying putting it together but man i don't i don't know how he has time to do this and he he runs uh i think he runs a monthly game and almost all of his scenarios are to this level of detail and he writes it all out 
where do you find the time, man? <laughs> and I've also been participating in the playtesting for this uh, Level Up project, which is Insiders. Level Up is to D&D 5th edition as Pathfinder was to D&D 3rd edition. They're trying to, to add more crunch um, and improve a lot of the things that they, they wish would could be better in 5th edition. And one of the, the, the first playtesting document that they released was all about uh, heritage and culture. Oh, good. And, mm -hmm, and they've divorced uh, species from culture. So you can be, you know, a half-orc who's been raised by elves, or you can be a gnome who's lived in a city all of his life. Um, and then there's various uh, uh, additional backgrounds you add onto that. So you've got three things that are contributing to your character's backstory and you can mix and match. And it's, it's really nice. It's a little bit even more high fantasy than D and D like they've got the, what they call the ruined dwarf who is a dwarf from a culture where their mountain or whatever, their kingdom has been destroyed. And so they're, they've turned into dwarf nomads. And one of their abilities is to, they can carry things as though they were a size larger than they are. So the Ruined Dwarf winds up being able to walk around with this gigantic backpack that's three times as big as he is. <laughs> Sounds like, like Holy Grail sort of stuff to me. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, this is completely implausible. But when you get over to that and you're like, oh, wait, this is like Terry Gilliam style fantasy. This is Time Bandits or something. Um, then it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, and my game master, Peter Martin from Saving the Game, is, has been selected oh, very as cool. one of the writers for the project. Yeah, I've heard him talk about that on the show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're getting, you know, direct input into into one of the regular years. <laughs> of course, he's not doing like the high-level design stuff. Uh, I think he's going to be mostly contributing to the multi-class rules because he wrote an article on multi-class feats for 5th edition that they liked a lot. But it's it's been fun being able to say, oh, yeah, we've got doing this play test with one of the designers, our uh, feedback is going straight back into the design group. And I think the extra crunchy game systems is not really my style that I prefer. I like to go the other direction, but I think for what it is, it's, it's pretty high quality stuff and it's a lot of fun to play with. And that it's, wraps it up for me. Yeah. sounds like an exciting project. So, okay. So Onto the main content of our show. Uh, as we have mentioned, we have brought with us Eric Troutman, who has so graciously uh, decided to join us to talk about what he's done in... Actually, you've touched a lot of areas of geeky hobbies. I mean, the video games, RPGs, comics. Yeah, I have a hard time holding yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've you've started your early career in in RPG books, and you've done a number of role playing games, and contributed to a lot of a lot of books. Uh, a lot of our listeners may have a number of your RPG books, but haven't really seen how those books have come together. So, what has been your role in bringing the books that we know and loved from concept to finished product? Uh, okay, well, uh, the answer to this question, I'm going to just focus on the Star Wars stuff because it will vary from project to project. Um, as a freelance writer, um, which is how I started out on the Star Wars stuff at West End Games, um, I was handed assignments. I collected what I called editorial table scraps for several years. <laughs> um, uh, the Star Wars Game Masters collection. Uh, yeah, um, they, uh, 
the editor at the time, Bill Smith, asked me for a specific um, thing on like how to use artifacts in a in a Star Wars game or. Uh, write a 5,000 word uh, New Republic era adventure focusing on smugglers. Um, and that was actually my first piece for them was for a book called The Politics of Contraband. So in that case, it was like you were given a certain amount of space and rough subject matter. And then um, I was to provide an outline that would then be approved by Lucasfilm and then I'd get the go ahead or the thumbs down to, to proceed to writing it. And the way Bill ran the line, there was a lot of heavy formatting that had to be done um that i'm not sure other other companies did because of the very specific layout conventions that the art department at west end needed it was easier for um, them to have everything come in sort of pre-formatted like the same fonts at the same point size and stuff it was it was very fiddly uh, when i first started out as a as an editor there when i'd been hired on I often was being handed projects that had been started like here's an outline that lucasfilm approved here's the writer go go make the book so working with the writer crafting the manuscript making sure it conformed to the outline um and then uh, running it through um, the art department is what we call it uh, there's a weird artificial barrier between our art department and our editorial department because uh and uh myself and another editor who had been hired at about the same time george Strayton, we started uh hanging out with the art department at lunchtime and uh, it made it, it, it made the, the art director nervous, but uh, I, <laughs> the, there was an old game by Bungie. It was the first networkable first-person shooter you could play on a Macintosh, and the art department had the color Macintoshes. We had the old boxy Mac classics in editorial. And uh, so we'd start by playing video games, and then we'd design levels, and we'd get used to working together. And then I started just asking questions. Like I knew nothing about page design or layout or anything. Um, and just because the artist got used to me and I think they liked annoying the art director, um, <laughs> basically everything uh, I do today as a, as a graphic designer, my, my start was by talking to the guys in the art department and figuring out how type worked and how type was supposed to work with art and how art and type were supposed to work in this layout and why standardization was important and so on and so forth. Um, and then when I became the, the line editor, I mean, my whole job was coming up with, here's the slate of books we need to do this year and breaking down which editors would handle which books and what I wanted from the book. So it was a lot of writing outlines and specs and then looking at the final product and trying to shape it the way I wanted it to go. And of course, in the middle of that, the company went bankrupt and I didn't yeah. do any of it. So it was um, yeah. mostly, yeah, it was a, it was being told what to do, doing my level best to do it under insane conditions. Uh, we were talking about this offline before we started. Um, most of us in editorial were responsible for two to three books a month at a minimum of 96 pages. And that meant um, if, there, if the writer didn't turn in the manuscript on time, well, that, that type's got to come from somewhere. So you'd end up writing large sections of, of books that were coming in late. And books are coming in late because we paid trash and we paid late because the, the parent company of, of West End Games um, was not well run. West End Games itself was quite profitable, but those profits all got rolled into this other company and disappeared um, there was a period where I was paying freelancers to just use their names. So it didn't look like myself and Tim O'Brien were the only two guys writing books for the line. Like that was really near the end. So yeah, chicanery, <laughs> lies, uh, <laughs> constant hustling. And if you missed a date, the, the company might fold. Um, our cash flow was really thin. So that's kind of what I did. Like I, I, I could drill down into the real nitty gritty of it if you want, but I think it would probably bore anybody, but the most hardcore fan. 
Bill Slavisek gave some some little bits of insight as to some of the pressures that were going on in in his book. And he described a time that somebody was was called into the office says, well, here in your punch card, you punched in. And then one hour later, you punched out. You can't do this. And it's like, no, 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 no. Uh, they they came in and they punched out 26 hours later. Your time clock just isn't showing the date. So yeah. <laughs> it, from what I've read, it was it was pretty intense. Are you guys familiar with the, the role-playing game Paranoia, I assume? Yes. Familiar okay. with it. I've wanted to right. play. Where you, you are cogs in this machine run by an insane supercomputer um, that constantly works against you. Uh, Paul Sudlow was one of the editors hired at about the same time I was, and he once made the observation. He's like, oh, yeah, no, our job is the paranoia lark. We don't get to die. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was really high pressure. Um, it's There's an old Jerry Seinfeld joke about riding in cabs, and I kind of liken it to my West End days. It's like, like you're watching it on TV. Like I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I would never let somebody treat me like that. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was very, very difficult and demanding. Um, and you know, it's a blood sport because the stakes are so low. Um, <laughs> Scott was a um, passed away last year. Was to his credit, it's the only place I've ever worked where the longer I was there and the more successes I racked up, the more autonomy and authority I had. My Microsoft days mm. were the exact opposite of that. Like, here, I've made you millions of dollars. Great. Here's nine more layers of management and everyone telling you to justify <laughs> doing your job. Um, yeah. He was capricious. He would blow up the schedule on a whim. But And I don't know what other editors' relationship with him was like, but I, I found myself in a position where I could just walk into his office and go, this is crazy. Stop doing crazy. Stop spraying crazy all over our schedule. And he would usually listen to me. Um, oh, wow. That was typically saved for when I was almost suicidally upset about mm. what was going on. But uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to fathom it now as a guy pushing 50, that that was my life in my twenties. Like, but uh, yeah, no, mostly what, what the editor's job was to do was to kind of outline a vision of the project, communicate that to the people who had to execute on it and shoring up them the best you could. Uh, my personal method for doing that was making sure that I was approaching the writers, not so much from a, here's what we want standpoint, but asking them, what do you want to make and finding ways to convince the powers that be both at West End and at Lucasfilm that these were the books we needed to make. During my tenure, we you could clearly chart a, uh, a path away from adaptation of film and novel material, although we still did some of that, and into more crunchy gamery things. Because after after ten years or however long um, West End had been making the Star Wars role playing games, like I don't really need yeah. Luke Skywalker. Stats. <laughs> yeah. I, I we counted it once, and it, it, they showed up in variations. Like here's where he is as of this book or of this comic or this novel. Um, like 15 times or more. And I was like, that's, he's Luke. He's just number one. We just know he's the best. Can we move on? And steering more towards things like uh, Tim O'Brien's excellent Pirates and Privateers book. Um, yes. Trying to take the model that, trying to learn the lesson that Galaxy Guide 6 taught the first edition guys, where you can widen the scope beyond the Rebels versus Imperials, give them something fun to do. So we did Special Forces and the pirate stuff, and we had some plans to do other cool things. Uh, Paul Sudlow's uh, Tapani Sector stuff, Lords of the Expanse, where you can play Core World Nobles. Like, you know, still very Star Wars, 
but not just yeah. rebels versus Imperials I mean, over. And there over is so again. much uh, that is alluded to in this, especially in the first three Star Wars movies. So much lore that uh, you get glimpses of, but you know, don't get deep dives into because because of the story. But there's just so much, so many possibilities there. I mean, when we knew we were going to be able to get you on the show. I don't have a lot of old Western Star Wars material, but I did do a look at what I do have. And lo and behold, I found that I actually do have copies of uh, Galaxy Guide, Tramp Freighters, and Fragments from the Rim. And I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, they're his. And they're just such great resources that really extend the scope of, 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 the, of the Star Wars universe beyond like what you said. It's more, it's more than just the Empire. It's more than just the Rebel Alliance. It, to to coin a phrase, it, there's a galaxy out there, and it's far, far away, and it's really, really big. I uh, I was really proud of Galaxy Guide Nine. I, I think if uh, um, I think if I had to pick the project I was most proud of from the early days uh, of my work there, um, Fragments was definitely it. It had a as as it does everything West End games related has a kind of fragmented history. Um, a, a writer in Britain named Simon Smith had written an excellent proposal for it. And Bill Smith, who was the line editor at the time, bought it. I was still freelancing. I was still in editorial table scraps mode. And uh, he had written this outline and then turned in a manuscript kind of late that didn't conform to the outline. Oh, no. And it was riddled with like Doctor Who Yikes. and Battletech <gasps> and Douglas Adams references that he had been explicitly told not to do. And when Bill got a hold of him and, and and said, like, why did you do this? I asked you not to do it. And Simon's response was words to the effect of, well, it's the editor's job to pull it out. Oh, so no. he called me uh, and said, can <laughs> you not get a job again? <laughs> yeah, can, pretty much. Can you uh, can you rewrite all of this and scrub out all of the pop culture references he shouldn't have used? And can I have it by Tuesday? And this was like a Thursday. Oh um, so I basically wrote it over uh, over a weekend, um, rewrote it. Uh, kept the stuff that that worked and threw out. There's a whole section on the various kinds of blaster power cell. It was pages and pages of essentially Star Wars D cells and like that. Well, so that so this character go. on um, page 42 called the physician. That's totally not the doctor. Then, <laughs> <laughs> ironically, on page 42. Well done. That was a good joke. Um, I'm sure some of that stuff snuck in there. Occasionally, you would see that. Uh, there's a there's an architect uh, and writer. I think he's in Kansas City now, uh, Sterling Hershey, who used to write for us a bunch. And he did. Uh, we did a book of just character templates, the basic character archetypes you could customize as your character to play in the game. And he wanted to do. He called it the Interstellar Hitchhiker, and you know, very clearly a Douglas Adams reference. And you were supposed to do a template and then a sample character using that template. And we we uh, we told them don't don't call it a hitchhiker. That's you know. Yeah, we can get away with it, but I don't want to have that argument. So it was like interstellar transient or something. But his uh, his sample character had uh, the name of it was an anagram of Douglas Adams. And when it went to print, he was very pleased to find that we had changed that to an anagram of <laughs> no <laughs> But I know like the, the real name of the skipper from Gilligan's Island ended up in one of the adventures somewhere. Like that was that was not on my watch, but um there, there's a few little gems like that that got through because you mm -hmm. just can't know everything, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that was sort of what I did. Herding cats for, for, <laughs> for fun and profit. 
Was uh, your experience at, at West End, do you think that was typical of the RPG industry at that, in those days? God, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> honestly, okay, I It's pretty know. typical of the VFX industry right now, so that's why I was curious. Yeah, honestly, I don't know. Um, the uh, I didn't do any work f- really for any other dice and paper game company in that capacity. Um, when West End folded... Uh, Tim O'Brien and I went to Gen Con and papered the place with our resume. And I had a guy from Steve Jackson Games tear my resume up in my face. Ouch. Jeez. Uh, Star Wars is a license to print money. You went out of business um, with the Star Wars license with you in charge of it. So obviously you're the problem. I was literally told that to my face. But the, uh, the horror stories I've heard are that they're, they're not uncommon. Like Watsi, well, TSR back in the day was probably pretty chaotic, but under the Watsi banner, it was much more corporate and less insane. I'm sure, but like smaller companies like Mayfair and some of the other ones, like, well, actually, I, sh- I take that back. FASA, I, I have some a good window into FASA because Jordan Weissman eventually hired me at Microsoft and, and I knew a lot of those guys and that it was chaotic, but not quite so chaotic. We were a particularly wild and woolly bunch, I think. <laughs> and you're you're back in RPGs now. Yeah. I, I presume that the lessons that you learned back then have guided... Uh, your practices today? Yeah. Um, I'm, well, I'm back into it much more on my own terms, which is nice. Um, mm-hmm. I've been friends with Gareth Michael Skarka, um, the founder of Adamant Entertainment, for 30 years. We've known each other for forever. Um, and he uh, he got... Uh, he, he successfully funded uh, a Kickstarted project called Far West, which uh, has be- bedeviled him ever since. Uh, <laughs> he had a successful Kickstarter and managed to complete most of the, the stuff for the Kickstarter. Like there was a bunch of stretch goals and stuff and that all got knocked out. And then by the time he was finishing up on the RPG itself, uh, cancer almost killed him. Oh, um, and so he, you know, he's in, he, he ended up uh, in precarious financial situations because, hey, best healthcare system in the world. <laughs> and by his own admission, he's been talking about this fairly openly lately. So I don't think he would uh, begrudge me saying this. He's had uh, been dealing with some serious depression and, and stuff that he's finally getting treatment for. Um, but that makes it really hard to create and the added pressure um, of wanting to deliver the thing he said he would deliver. Um, has paralyzed them to a certain extent and i watched him get into kind of an online and i and gareth i put this in 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 a, in a book we'll be talking about later gareth could find a fight in an empty <laughs> like, getting around that uh i love him but that's that's a thing he and i share that that uh that that nasty streak occasionally but uh and I the watched internet him... is very willing to accommodate you in that yeah oh okay. yeah <laughs> exactly and uh and i watched him get into kind of an online scuffle with another friend of mine and i was like if he's seeing her as an enemy he's been living in the walls of this for too long and so i reached out to him and was like well can i help with far west because i could do your layout or whatever it just cleans out of eyes and um and it ended up turning into i'll do everything else I'll, i'll make the other stuff um you focus on far west and to his credit he's been continuing to tune and work on far west uh, and I started doing the preliminary layout for it about a week or two, three weeks ago, three weeks ago. He's three chapters away from done. Um, I've seen the manuscript. It's really fun, but he's the tuning process. Like when he first started doing it, uh, it was going to be a D 20 based system, um, to kind of coincide with things that were going on then. 
Uh, but it's been so long. Uh, we're pro- we, we're, he's modified the D6 system, which I know quite well. So it's essentially on its third operating system, but he's been working on it. Uh, so that meant I could go, I could take projects that he had in the pipeline, notably for the Thrilling Tales pulp line, um, and finish them off and give them kind of a visual upgrade. And because I, you know, while he was working on this other stuff, I, I had the luxury of time to, to play with them. And then I started kind of uh usurping the line <laughs> i guess i uh i started commissioning projects and stuff and my big thing is i've uh i've tried to treat the creators like i i'm paying for a lot of this stuff out of my own pocket so i don't have a bottomless budget but i pay in advance because i'm working with people who i know will deliver um and i can reach out and get oh i can get a cool piece of spot art from steve lieber this eisner award-winning uh comic book artist that i've worked with because he's a friend of mine They're like oh yeah i can dash out a robot spider drawing for you sure you know um so working with friends working with people that i respect doing projects that i don't know if they're commercial but they're fun and that's sort of my goal so coming at it from my own terms uh i think has been the big thing that's got me back into it if it's, if, if this was going to just be like me working for another publisher or something i i think i'd i'd uh, i'd leave it um, <laughs> but i have too much fun and like i said i get i get to do what i want um and just occasionally i'll get the feedback from gareth that's usually just giggling laughter like i can't believe you did that <laughs> you know that kind of stuff is always that kind of makes my day so now uh to circle back to star wars for just a moment and i'm sure we're going to circle that wagon sure. a lot you talked for a moment about how you were particularly happy with how Galaxy Guide 9 Fragrance of the Rim came out. Now, I'm sure that when you guys were making all of this stuff for Lucas, you guys probably had like a Bible about instructions about what you could create content for and what you couldn't, like what you weren't allowed to touch. Was there ever something from that do not touch section that like a storyline or a character you know, that you, you read about it and you, you really wished you could have created material for? Honestly, no. Um, the, we didn't have a Bible per se. Um, we did have a style guide that Bill Smith had generated that kind of told us what to stay or clear of. And that was based on his dealing with Lucasfilm for so long. Um, the big stuff that was out of off limits, like just stay away from the Clone Wars, stay away from the old Republic. Um, and I didn't really care. I mean, I was interested in what the Clone Wars were, um, you know, up in, until I saw them. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I was perfectly content to fiddle around in the margins like West End did. I, w- I was 100% okay with that. And uh, um, there was a project I tried to get off the ground and couldn't get approved, uh, which bummed me out. Uh, we were looking to do another campaign box set like uh, the Dark Strider campaign, uh, which was set in the New Republic era, and as was the Lords of the Expanse campaign, I think. Um, and I wanted to focus on the the Zim the Despot era um, from the oh, Brian yeah. Alien solo novels. You know, these referenced, right? Like, like we're going to bypass the Republic completely because it's off in this other section of space and just – make that a campaign setting um, with older tech and, you know, hyperspace travel was much more difficult and much more age of sale. And I, uh, actually Pablo Hidalgo, uh, come to think of it, who is now an executive at Disney and was a story consultant on, on the, the recent films. Uh, he and I put that pitch together now that I think of it. Um, and oh, we, no we way. back when he was a freelancer, yeah, his first Star Wars stuff was for us. And, uh, and you mentioned, uh, I forget if this was during. <laughs> oh yeah, we were talking about Hero Forge. He 
he is the biggest champion of the squibs that ever was, by the way. <laughs> if there's if there's a squib character somewhere, uh, Pablo's probably responsible for it. Um, he uh, he and I put that together, and we really liked it because we we made a push to do multimedia with it. Like, this is a thing Dark Horse could have done some fun stuff with, or the Decipher card game guys. Like, And little did we know, a year later, Shadows of the Empire was going to be hoving into view, which was basically... A multimedia experiment, which I think is probably what killed our, our proposal. But that's the thing gotcha. I regret most not working on. Gotcha. Now, kind of along in the same yeah. vein, um, RPG-wise, you've done Star Wars, you've done sci-fi, you've done crime noir uh, with that awesome thrilling tales that you've been doing recently. Uh, is there a genre or a property that you would like to work on next or to create content for? Uh Property is tough. I've spent so much in my my professional life creating for okay. properties I don't own, um, and that that is that is less attractive to me now. I, I would like to make uh, mostly it's in comics, not so much in games. Um, an illustrator named Pete Woods and I had a have a pitch we put together um, that we're really proud of and has been. <laughs> thoroughly rejected by every publisher we brought it to um which is normal but it's you know um depressing <laughs> and uh <laughs> but it's uh, in in broad terms it, it would be a, an all ages appropriate action adventure piece um where a victorian family enters the ectoplasmic realm and fights lovecraftian horrors from beyond space and time i'm in um, right. heck yeah that's yeah, yeah i really want I, to I do something read that. yeah um I have a I have another property I'd been working on for for years and years and years and got really close to pitching it and uh, it was sort of a love letter to uh, the Burroughs Barsoom stuff and through the filter of uh, Jack Kirby um, and then the John Carter movie came out uh, and that's stiff, dead. So, well yeah. that's dead um, <laughs> so there's been a fair amount of that kind of stuff like my own personal projects I have a I have the working outline of uh, a supernatural mystery novel um, set in the 30s that I want to do as an adjunct to the Thrilling Tales line when we cool. get that up and running again. Um, but yeah, um, like in properties, like I'd love to do Bond. I'd love to do Star Trek. I wouldn't mind another bite at Indiana Jones. I only got to do one piece for that back in my West End Games days, but... Not not so badly that I'd want to de- deal with the hassle of, of playing with somebody else's toys unless the money was phenomenal. And unfortunately, work for hire rarely yeah. is phenomenal money. Um, and, you know, really altogether, the money for RPGs is not phenomenal. It's, it's generally some pretty tight margins when you get into that. So once you add the licensed property on top of that, it just it from what i hear it becomes very difficult uh, yeah no for sure and then you add to that uh on on the production side of things on the, the the content creation side of things i know what i was paid in the 90s is still uh what's being offered Ouch. as a rate today Ooh. largely Ooh. and what i was paid what i was paid in the 90s was what pulp writers were paid per word in the 30s and 40s like we're talking pennies a word that's you you don't <laughs> i'm gonna get rich in gaming is not a thing that is commonly said um, but, uh, so you're doing it cause you love it. I, I guess that's about all I have to say. About that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and it's, and it's clear that people have loved the work that you've produced. I mean, the, and I know again, the D six line and it, it has an impressive legacy. And if you, if you hop around from forum to forum for star Wars RPGs, like I do, 
you always see that there is somebody recommending that you know it doesn't matter ignore ignore the ignore the ignore the stat blocks because you know we're doing ffg or we're doing watsi but pick up the d6 books even if and as they say just for the fluff what is it that you think has really given that early work such a long lasting impact well beyond its line i'm probably too close to judge um okay but I will say, like I, I like like I said earlier, that, that there was a, a unit of us who were all kind of hired at roughly the same time. Myself, George Strayton, Paul Sudlow, uh, and Peter Schweighoffer, and we were we were the young Turks that were kind of shaking up the way things were were being handled internally. Like I, that divide between let's make fun game stuff and and let's give you Luke stats again was was a was a dividing line um, and. Uh, I think some of that energy really came through. Like we were, we were desperate to prove ourselves. We, we took everything very seriously in terms of the craft, the, the commitment to doing work that we thought people would like because we liked it. I, and I, I, I like to think that some of that is why, and a lot of it too. And there's no getting around this. Like the, the, the foundation had been laid beautifully by the guys who came before us. There's no, there's no getting around how excellent the first edition game was and how full of that kind of stuff it was. So taking that inspiration um, and pushing it ahead another 10 yards, another 10 yards, another 10 yards was, 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 uh, and, and I think it shows, it did not feel like mill product. It did not feel like, Oh, they're just slapping out another thing. You know, even when we did the compilation books of like gear or ships or aliens or whatever, we tried to add fun stuff in the margins that it wasn't just, here's the same thing you've already bought. Like it was, it was put together for ease of reference. So you don't have to carry 40 books with you to the game table. Um, if you already have this information in other books, you don't need it. Like we, we always try to approach everything as you don't need it, but we're going to try and make it so cool. You want it. Um, and I suspect that may be why it's hung on. I think some of that is the same, the same sorts of things that make the, uh, iron crown enterprises, mm -hmm. middle earth role playing yeah. books so enduring is that you've organized the lore you've put it in a place where it's it's easily accessible you don't have to read you know four novels and cross references on stuff for the stackpole stuff with the whoever else and those are the only star trek star wars novelists that i know off the top of my head uh, yeah <laughs> uh you can get it all there in a an easily digestible format and it's not tied specifically to the game so much i mean obviously you've got the stats in there but the fluff is what star wars is the the mechanics are not um and the, the iron crown stuff is the same way you know i've got my my honor book which now sells for six hundred dollars online um because it's just got that great lore in it that you don't need to worry about well does this is this compatible because the stat blocks are such a small part of what makes it valuable yeah i don't know i think i think i'm too close to judge i really don't uh I don't have a good response. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it weirds me out a little too. And I, I think that's the thing that I butt up against when I do talk about this stuff is that I see it in weird places. Like the, the there's a moment at the end of the movie Solo, which I assume we've all seen in one oh, of the yeah. past spoiler <laughs> embargoes, <laughs> where Beckett orders a drink. I named that drink in Galaxy Guy nice. 9. And I'm in the theater <laughs> freaking out. Um, <laughs> or when the death troopers who are basically mm -hmm. the storm commandos um also from galaxy guy nine show up in in rogue one or in the rebels cartoon 
or <laughs> a few years ago for my wife's birthday, we were in San Francisco and Pablo Hidalgo graciously offered to take us on a friends and family tour of Lucasfilm at the Presidio. And it was wonderful. But we bumped into somebody in the hallway and it's like, Pablo's like, oh, this is my friend Eric Troutman. And he goes, Galaxy Guide 9. And I'm like, I'm standing in Lucasfilm. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, there's an old, uh, there's an old Love sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati, um, which, oh, okay. Yeah. Do you remember the episode where Johnny Fever got Mike Fright? Because um, he suddenly realized people actually had yeah. been listening to the things that he said. Uh, like, I run into that with the Star Wars stuff, more so than with the comic stuff or video game stuff. Because I still get, like, you know, I worked on Halo, so people talk about Halo. Um, but that was such a miserable experience, it's easy for me to just <laughs> move on. But, um, so much of my my early career, so many of the lessons that I learned that let me make my living now were from that period, that being freighted with this, like, you know, uh, people walking up and, dude, you were my childhood. That's a horrible <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's really hard to live with. But, uh, yeah, I don't uh, – I just try not to think about it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, what next? Okay. Something that caught my eye uh, recently was a little thing called Every Star a Destination. And this really looks like it's – been a slow cooker of inspiration that's been stewing for some while. Um, can we talk a little bit about Every Star Destination? I'd be happy to. <laughs> um, so the project, I, going back to Rogue One for a moment, um, the project's genesis began when uh, the illustrator, um, Darren Calvert, who I've known for, again, who I've known for years, and I would have hired to do stuff at West End, but West End folded by the time he was available. He had drawn a bunch of portraits of the characters, uh, the main characters from Rogue One, and he had done them in a very specific art style. He had uh, he had aped the uh, very distinct look of an illustrator named Mike Velarde, who, if you were looking at fragments from the Rim, he's the guy who did the illustrations in that. He was a favorite artist of of both the art department at West End and our readers. Mike's just great, um, but he's also extremely hard to get a hold of. I've been trying to get a hold of him for a project for close to 10 years now. And he just apparently doesn't return emails. And, uh, and so Darren had drawn these and he said, it'd be fun if we give them these six stat blocks. And I said, well, if we're going to do that, let's make it look like a galaxy guide. Um, so I did a, I, I did some archeology span on like what fonts we used and our old layout styles and all of that. And it turns out I had most of it still committed to memory 20 odd years later. Um, <laughs> nice. So I put it together and we released them as PDFs online. I mean, it's, it's not like a complete 96 page galaxy guide or anything. It's just the hero's stats. Um, but I did a, a mint condition and a weathered version, you know, with like cover wear and page wear and stuff um, and released it and people lost their minds. Like I, I've lost track of how many we've downloaded. They're just for free. And uh, I was very pleased when Pablo Hidalgo made a point of mentioning it online that he liked it. So I knew Disney was going to one thing that we said over and over again on this on this podcast is when you do something with somebody else's property that's a labor of love, it is just every fan's deepest desire to just not get sued. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so in the case of Every Star, you know, at, at, you know, uh, like a year later after we'd done the Rogue One thing, I, uh, I joined forces with Gareth and Adamant and had been doing the Thrilling Tale stuff. And I just thought, you know, the D6 system... I'm a terrible game designer in that I suck at learning new rules. I'm terrible at it. But I, I, I had internalized D6 so much from being immersed in it 24 hours a day for my formative years um, that I'm still really conversant in it. And uh, it's like, yeah, uh, Eric 
Gibson, who had purchased one of the iterations of West End, had released the D6 system as open source, as open content. And I was like, wouldn't it be fun if we did a bunch of adventures in that style and get Darren to illustrate them? And then that turned into Gareth going, well, you know any of the old West End game guys who would still do it? And, you know, that never occurred to me. So I reached out. I had a budget for a certain amount of, uh, of content and reached out a pretty wide net, figuring maybe half of them would bite. 75% of a bit. <laughs> oh, wow. So suddenly I had a lot more content uh, that I'm paying in advance for. And <laughs> poor Darren, whose schedule is quite busy. He's, he's a sought-after commercial illustrator. And like every couple of weeks, I'm like, hey, can you do one more spot, Illo? Hey, can you do one more spot, <laughs> And uh, um, so, yeah, we put it together. And I, you know, just I wanted to capture that same feel. Obviously, it's not Star Wars. Um he said very, very clearly for the legal department, um, <laughs> and but had that same sense of fun, that same sense of anything goes. And I was very pleased with how diverse the adventures were. Um, I didn't tell anybody what to write. Um, I just said, hey, if you got a fun adventure, either sitting in a drawer that you never got to sell, if you want to submit that, or if you got something new, and everybody came up with something new, and I... Uh, I didn't have to do a lot of the, like I said, like the molding and shepherding that I used to have to do. Um, the biggest problem was that because I was doing all of that um, and it, it, the budget was uh, was ballooning, uh, I had to take out more work for higher work to pay for it. Um, so my adventure, like we started this book two years ago and it was done except for my adventure like a year and a half ago. <laughs> um, it took me the better, the, the better part of... Uh, of like 10 months to get it done. It just took forever um, because I was being pulled in so many different directions with my, my normal day job stuff and, and this, but I was very pleased with how it came out. And I'm very pleased that uh, again, we were very careful to make sure we weren't doing anything that would be uh, considered a challenge to the, the copyright, and the trademark, um, like right down to like, we don't use light speed or hyperdrive. You know, it's always, you know, like you will not see the word droid or even Android in that book. Like just to be very clear, um, there's a certain tendency in, in <laughs> writers that I know at least to want to kind of scrape the edge, you know, wink, nudge. And it was, it was part of the, the design ethos of the book that uh, at no point can this happen. Somebody in a suit walks into Pablo's office and says, yeah. what the heck are your friends doing? <laughs> that that cannot happen and uh, yeah uh and, disney has level 13 undead lawyers and we don't know we don't want that <laughs> yeah um and again like uh i would love to do more star wars stuff again maybe you know if the opportunity presented itself i would certainly not be averse to doing it but for me it was it's getting some friends back together that i hadn't talked to in a long time and and to be blunt there was uh a, there was so much pressure at West End and we were all in our 20s uh, and early 30s and, you know, not all of those friendships survived. And it was interesting to me that some of the people who responded were the people and responded immediately and enthusiastically were the people who literally we haven't had two words to say to each other since, since 1999. And that was really nice. And uh, it, it feels like a lot of old wounds got patched by that um my my biggest regret about it is that uh scott palter the former publisher and founder of west end games had passed away while we were creating the book um mm. that was a complicated relationship um we again we had talked about some of this offline that scott was difficult and capricious but 
he was a good boss to me in a lot of ways, except for the part where I was stiffed for tens of thousands of dollars in freelance, but uh, <laughs> that still rankles. I'm not going to lie. Mm. Um, but I got uh, one of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I, th- I think he would have dug it. I think he would have enjoyed it. He would have been annoyed that it wasn't dark and bloody and spiky enough. That, that would have been his note. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I must say that this book is really I mean, I was impressed at how the book was going to be produced. I mean, when I first saw this drop online, I, I was expecting, oh, yeah, of course, this is a Kickstarter. You, you raise the funds and then hopefully everybody gets paid. But you took a different route. What what inspired you to take the path that you did? That, that thing where I got stiff for tens of thousands of dollars by my old publisher. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that that literally a, was a, why. A good life lesson. Yeah. No, I... You know, everybody's taking a flyer on it. Nobody's going to get rich on it. Um, one of the other things, too, is that um, with the exception of stuff that Gareth and I specifically created and put in the book, um, I wanted to treat it like a creator-owned project, like a comic one. So if, for example, Bill Smith wants to take his planet, uh, Tessa Kill, from the, from the book and use it in a piece of his fiction or whatever, go for it, you know? Um, the Rip Beak um, and the other pirate group um, from from Mike Kogi's adventure, if he decides to go and do something with that, you know, go, you own it, go earn what you want with it. Like our, our one ask is that we get to keep this quote in print. I mean, it's, it's digital. So it's always in print quotey fingers, but um, you know, it felt like everybody got to have fun, have, has a bit of an ownership stake in it all. Everybody got paid up front, granted not tons, but you know, <laughs> comparable <laughs> to what West end would have paid him, except late and maybe not at all. And <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that was just, I was like, I, I wanted to treat people like I always wish publishers had treated me. My DC Comics experience was almost universally miserable. And I just, there's so much casual disrespect towards creators from the publishers, um, unless they're superstar creators, that it can be really discouraging. And I didn't want anyone discouraged. I wanted everyone having fun. And occasionally somebody would bump into, I don't know how I'm feeling about this. And we'd talk about it. And it was all fun and upbeat and very, very old school collaborative and I really enjoyed that part of it. Awesome. So where could our listeners pick up this wonderful bit of goodness? Um, well, uh, print copies of it can can be found in my wife's comic shop at 4230 Pacific Ave, Lacey, Washington, he said in his doctor voice. Um, it's predominantly <laughs> available as PDF or print on demand uh, on Drive-Thru RPG. Um, that is where I picked up my copy. It's also available on Amazon because of the way the system works. There's some bonus files that we created for uh, the drive-through edition of it. Uh, there's a standalone like collection of all the stats for quick re- reference. So you don't have to flip back and forth in the book if you're if you're in play, um, and one that has all of the handouts and stuff just ready to go and be printed. Um, uh, if you order it on Amazon, just shoot us uh, an email at the Adamant Entertainment mail address, and uh, we'll uh, we, we could just email you those files. But that's it. <laughs> Every Star Destination really has evoked the feel of the Star Wars book, while having an undeniable contemporary look to it as well. How how did this set of visual chemistry come about? Uh, huh, good question. Um, well, like I said, uh, I had kind of done some archaeology on our old layout um uh, it the west end books with a with a 
uh, I'm going to be a font nerd for a minute. Occupational hazard as a graphic designer. The the, the body type. You like all kinds of nerds here. Yeah. The, uh, I can tell you the fonts too because I've done yeah. some fan work. So yeah, yeah geek so that, out about this. This is great. That, that combination of Cheltenham and Eris for the headers, uh, it's just very distinct. Um, so that was easy enough. Um, the big thing for, for me, I think, was uh, to, to give it more of a contemporary feel uh, would be in the, the, the diagrams and handouts and stuff, um, which only came about, frankly, because I know more about how to make them than I did back then, and our computers are more powerful and can do more wifty stuff faster than our old computers used to be able to. So I'll admit, when I got it in the mail and I first started leafing through it, I saw that font and I saw the format of the, mm-hmm. you know, the pictures and the tables and the descriptions behind it. There was some heavy nostalgia. Like I was being whisked back to playing, and Brian actually ran us a, a Star Wars D6 game a long time ago. And those feelings started coming back. But then I started looking at everything new that was added. It's like, oh, this just, it's like seeing an old friend and realizing that that old friend is still a really good friend and he looks just as good as he ever did. And he lost some weight. He, he gained some muscle. He's, <laughs> he's got a new haircut. He's really taking care of himself. He's doing good in life. Well, I appreciate that. That, uh, that was the idea. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if I can really articulate a process by, by which I did it. It was just sort of, this looks right. This feels right. If it didn't feel right, I threw it away and started over. Mm-hmm. So that was how that, that visual chemistry, um, if you will, sort of happened. Um, you know, uh, the, the big thing I think was some of the cover art. Um, my, my buddy Colton Worley, who uh, he does a lot of covers for Dynamite Entertainment. Um, he's based in Spokane and he's a good friend of mine and he's just a hell of a good painter. Um, and so when I asked him, Hey, do you want to do kind of generic sci-fi cover that feels like star Wars, but won't get me sued? He went, yep. <laughs> and that's what I got. <laughs> and, uh, and I just, the vibrant colors and stuff, honestly, I think, uh, cause a lot of our covers back in the day, um, were either with very few exceptions, um, were either stuff that got Photoshopped together by our art department, stock photos that were given to us by Lucasfilm or, like uh, some of the Dark Strider covers, if I recall correctly, um, I think Cathal Rift was the one where it was like Serbian off-brand, like they'd done knockoffs of the Han Solo novels or something and hired some local <laughs> artist to paint it. And then Lucasfilm, like, you know, got control of that artwork so we could buy it as second rights on the cheap. Like there was a lot of that kind of stuff. So it was very rare we got original art covers. Um, and uh, so that was what I was pushing for with Colton was just like bright beautiful you know and i and i think i think that really sets the tone just that that kind of classic yeah it could be star wars it could be traveler it could be star frontiers but you know it's it's got that era knocked down you know um and uh so that was sort of our cover process (laughs) vague descriptions from me and excellent execution from colton fantastic all right so um Really kind of a pointed question for you, Eric, because oh. the the week that it was released, I was reading Star Wars Instant Adventures, wishing that there were more books like it. So here it is. Direct question for the record, hard hitting investigative geek at arms journalism. Can you read my mind? Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny. I will say, uh, <laughs> I will say you, you smell different when you're awake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the only thing Mike is thinking is like as he's geeking out going he's been in my house oh. 
<laughs> That's not the normal response, but thank you. Your <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I just always like that format. And that format was the brainchild back in the day of uh, George Strayton, who I learned a lot of lessons from when we were working together. He was just so gifted. He was so gifted and he was so into game design in a way I wasn't. I, I liked that the system worked and I could use it. He was one who was always looking to tweak it and improve it and optimize it and running the numbers and doing the math, which, you know, math, um, but <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, and he worked really hard on that format. So you could like, here's the, you know, here's a good, you can read these four bullet points and you know what the adventure is. Nope. That's not for my guy. Yep. That's for my, that's, that's for my group. You know, um, in the case of this, it was just a no brainer. Like, let's just use this format that we know works um, it's easy on the GM, um, and then just try and load it with as much cool visual stuff and, and cool cinematic moments as we can. That format's bulletproof. And I don't know why more, more adventures aren't done in that format. I, I don't, I don't understand it. It, I, it may just be a facet of it being so old. I gotta say though, as you said, it's, it's so easy for the GM because I, I'm running a star Wars group right now. Uh, on uh, on roll 20 and it's one of those things that i'm like okay i've got a session coming up i've got to figure out what i'm doing i'm drawing a blank what can i adapt and having those bullet points is just the thing like oh that's not the flavor for this mission oh that's not the flavor for the this is the flavor okay let's let's delve into this and let's and let's run it so mission accomplished there and yeah <laughs> the you. question why don't more people do this so other people you're listening do this <laughs> yeah it's not it's not it's not wedded to the d6 system any game could do this format you know it's <laughs> there's there's no need for I, I don't understand why it's just not common industry practice um, but by the same token i've been out of the industry mainstream for so long like i don't i couldn't tell you like who reviews games who's publishing what like i used to know all that stuff cold and like i was over here doing my own thing now <laughs> so um <laughs> But yeah, it just seems to me like it's it when it's great for when you've got a group of different writers. Like here's a format. I don't need to I don't need to individually teach you all. Like here's the format and uh it's perfect for anthologies. All right. Well, as we kind of start to wrap things up, Eric, one question we want to ask is as someone who has had several different jobs in the industry, freelance a staff writer uh, held higher level positions, both in RPGs and in comics as well. There's always going to be people who want to get into this industry, gaming, comics, and more. Same as it was back in the 90s as it is today. Do you have any advice on how people can get their start? I wish I had a good pat answer for that um, beyond the basic stuff. Just like keep working on your craft you know, uh, writers in particular have to be convinced that they're the absolute only right person for the job while simultaneously holding the lid that, Oh God, I suck. I got to get better. I got to get better. I got to get better. <laughs> um, uh, you know, writers, write. I I've often said when I've had to address like classrooms and stuff, and this usually annoys the teacher profoundly, uh, I write for the same reason alcoholics drink. It's a compulsion. <laughs> you can't not do it. Um, it's an illness in a lot of ways. Um, the creative instinct can really be destructive because I'm miserable when I'm not doing it, you know, and that makes it easy for you to, you know, find excuses to not um, maintain your personal life as well as you otherwise might. So my, uh, 
my path into the industry was, um, I mean, West End was the first kind of staff job. Um, I, you know, I'd done freelance and so I'd been working writer since I was 14, regional interest magazines or whatever. Um, most of which went, <laughs> bought my stuff and then folded before publishing an issue. Maybe it's <laughs> me. Um, I've lived that dream. Yeah. Um, but I got paid. So, uh, that was, yeah. So West end led to Microsoft led to comics and all of that happened because I spotted opportunities and actively pursued them, uh, or in some cases aggressively pursued them. Um, so being mindful of where the opportunities are, um, here in the age of the internet, you have tools that are, uh, available to you that I would have committed non-specific murders for when I was younger. <laughs> so just research alone, right? The internet, just for, like, I used to have to go into dusty libraries and, you know, microfiche. You remember microfiche? Oh, you know, yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. I had to reshelve them. Yeah. Uh, so that that is a gift that nobody cares about. <laughs> that amazes me. <laughs> it's just, you know, whatever. So, yeah, uh, a friend of mine from high school who I used to game with was the line editor of the Star Wars role-playing game, and I was going through a bad patch, and he threw me a little bit of work, and I just made sure that I did the job to spec. Uh, there's a game writer named S. John Ross who once said, 99% of the worst uh, writing sins imaginable will be forgiven by your editor with tears and a hug if you just turn the damn thing in on time. <laughs> um, and And that's... I mean, that's a gross oversimplification, but you'd be surprised as an editor how many people I would see like manuscripts come over the transom that just completely ignored the submission process. You want to set yourself apart from the pack, research the market, find the right place to pitch your stuff, follow their instructions, and you're already 95% ahead of the pack. You can get another 60% by being pleasant to work with. Yeah, or cheap. Cheap is also good, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, never undervalue yourself. That's that's a hard. That's a good piece of advice. Uh, um, ask for what you're worth, and uh, let them negotiate down. You're doing them a favor then. Um, but uh, in the after times, when there are conventions again, um, you know, you have you know, there's so many conventions now. Back when they used to be such uh, such rarities where you can just go meet an editor. Like it's so much easier for you to hand a portfolio on a zip drive to an editor or send, give him a business card with a Dropbox link, Dropbox link to your portfolio. So he's not carrying pockets full of zip drives home. You, uh, you know, you can make that personal connection. It's so much easier for an editor to hire you. If he's met you in person, he or she has met you in person and thinks you're okay. So yeah, uh, just keep an eye out for your opportunities. Don't be a, don't be a jerk to editors. Uh, the worst approach to any editor is to walk up and go, here's what you're doing wrong and here's how I can fix it. Um, <laughs> that's a bad one. Uh, don't do that. Lots of people do that and uh, they don't get the work. So, mm -hmm. so uh, with every star a destination in the KN, uh, what are you working on right now? Uh, gaming wise, uh, I had, as I had mentioned earlier, I've started doing the layout work on far west my hope is to get that knocked out um i don't want to commit to dates because that has burned us so many times in the past but soon fair um, never it, call it, it final is, it is being right. worked on uh it has not been laying dormant for nine years um it has continually been worked on uh we're talking about 
doing more star system stuff for sure. Um, we have a list of projects that we're calling, we're calling right now down to something that two people can manage because, you know, the ideas come fast and furious. The executing on them is what takes time and money. Um, we want to do a third edition of thrilling tales probably in 2021. Um, and I have, a, a, again, an endless list of projects I want to do for that. <laughs> um, in comics, my, 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 regular, my regular stuff, uh, the design work on, on the various image titles for Greg Rucka and the Atomic Robo stuff and any other stuff that crosses the transom that interests me. Uh, I've hit a point in my life where I can pick my projects like that now. I don't have to hustle for them. And I, I, that is a luxury I never thought I would have. Um, so that's what I'm working on. Hold your applause. <laughs> <laughs> no promises. Well, I think that is going to wrap it up with our guest. Eric, do you have any websites that you want to plug or where can people find you and your work online? Oh, uh, my website is uh, www.erictroutman.us. Yeah, I couldn't get the .com. Uh, it's E-R-I-C-T-R-A-U-T-M-A-N-N. <laughs> Uh, dot com and i'm at mercury eric on twitter if you're okay with lots of political ranting and swearing <laughs> i also recommend people go to adamantentertainment.com where you can find information about star system every star destination thrilling tales far west and so much more and uh, i think that that will lead us to our zombie apocalypse plan of the week mike what have you got for us this time this time I've reached out again to our unscrupulous core of morticians. And this time, when we lay people to their final rest, we're just going to go ahead and pack their stomachs full of appetite suppressants so that when they do <laughs> rise from the grave, they're just not feeling it. And it's all clean up from there. <laughs> so instead of just going around going, ah, they're like, eh, 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 kind of not really hungry. I like it. Well, uh, that will wrap it up for us this episode. I want to thank you all for listening in. And once again, I want to say, Eric, thank you very much for joining us in this podcast. This has been a lot of fun. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you guys. Check us out online at geekatarms.com at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And Mike, what is our Twitter handle? We are at armsgeek on Twitter. And finally, from all of us, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. And let's get this ball rolling. We'll start us in three, two, wait, Mike is the phone off. Let's go check. <laughs> of course it was. It was not. <laughs>